Welcome to the Talk and Chatter Experience, powered by Gasoline Alley Harley Davidson. I'm your host, Mick, and on today's show, show number 45, is four times World Speedway champion Greg Hancock. It was an absolute honour to sit down with Greg and discuss the longevity of his career. Obviously, speaking of the Monster Energy relationship, Pro Drive relationship throughout the mid 2000s, developing bikes, and all other things that uh, got him into the career that he has had. One thing I will ask is if you get the chance to give us a review on iTunes, maybe subscribe on Spotify or YouTube, and just tell your friends about the show. Would uh, it goes a long way? So, thanks everyone for listening. Hope you enjoy it, and uh, time to throw it over the show. Thank you. Welcome, Greg Hancock. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here, man. Mate, um, thanks for taking the time out of your, of your morning. Um, yeah, to have a bit of a chat to us over here in Australia. Uh, who's Greg Hancock? Yeah, first of all, it's my pleasure. And uh, uh, well, Greg Hancock is a, a different sort of a character from Costa Mesa, California. Spent my life racing motorcycles. Pretty much got the uh, got the itch from a, a very young age. My dad introduced me to these uh, this this awesome sport when I was about I don't know four or five years old, something like that. And uh, probably from the first time I saw the, the junior speedway guys roll out onto the track, which would have been in the days of like a Lance King and and guys like that, I was uh, I was shocked. And then from that point on, I never stopped tugging in my dad's back pocket. So uh, you know. Here we are, like 40, 45 years later, and um, just finished doing what I wanted to do, but I haven't finished riding the bike yet. <laughs> now that uh, that doesn't seem to be stopped. Like you're so active, still obviously on social media and that competitive riding, maybe in in that sort of scene, but you don't seem to stop wanting to ride. That'd be correct, hey? Absolutely, no. I I still love it. Um, you know, I. I, uh, at the time that I retired, I, I don't know that I was completely fully ready to retire. Although there was something in the back of my head that was saying, I think the time is right. Um, but you know, I've, I've missed it every single day since I, I said, I'm not going to do it anymore. And that's just over a year ago now. And, um, but you know, I, I'm still heavily involved. I'm still very active in it. My kids racing too. So um, I had a lot of unfinished projects that I was working on, so those are still in progress right now and trying to do some testing and, and development work with uh, other things I was working on to help um, oh, some of the other riders coming up. One of them is Luke Becker, and um, uh, you know I have high hopes for Luke as well as uh, done some development stuff for uh, Magic Yanofsky too. He's been, you've been a big part of Magic's uh, program for a long time, hey? Yeah, you know, Magic was, um, uh, he's an awesome kid. Everybody knows that I have a, a soft spot for him. Uh, he came around our uh, our racing program when he was, I, I want to say, 10, 11, 12 years old, somewhere there. Uh, his family were friends with my mechanic, Raphael High, uh, with him and his family. Mm. And um, he pretty much brought Magic in under our uh, under our umbrella there and uh, the kid was always hungry to go racing, and he was just obviously he didn't speak any, any English at that time, but always there, always smiling, always helpful, wanting to learn, uh, listened so well, and just a kind, courteous young kid, you know. And um, he's still the same kid today. He's um he's going along leaps and bounds too. Hey, you just see the progression. Obviously, the last last few years, it's been incredible, hasn't it? 
absolutely. I mean, he's so established now and he's, um, he, he's pretty, he's an animal, you know, the kids, he's so fit and he's just, he trains hard. He works hard. His whole racing program is so well organized and, uh, you know, he, he's, you know, I, I ran the program that worked really good for me, but the program that he's running is even more so. And, um, probably the fact that he's got to be on the ball, being a, a young Polish kid and, uh, you know, a Polish rider and, and a superstar in Poland. And, um, you know, he's, he's kind of in the national press on a regular basis. So he's got to be, he's got to be on in great form and on top of his program. It's, um, Obviously, America's in the same sort of boat as Australia a bit. That's a little hard to fathom, isn't it, about being a mainstream star in, in, in that chosen sport? It's, um, it's very hard to fathom from our side of the world here. Yeah, you're, you're exactly right. I mean, and you, I think you guys are even um, you know, ahead of us in so many ways. For sure you are. Uh, we're, we're far away from, from Europe where the racing is at its, you know, at its peak there, and you guys are even further away. But it seems like you guys have much more of a presence in, in Europe these days and in, on the international speedway scene. So uh, it, it's tough, you know, being far away, you're, everything, um, uh, you know, it seems to be that little bit harder. You got to leave the comforts of home. You got to leave, the, you know, the culture, the lifestyle, uh, your family, your friends and food and everything like that to go to Europe and, and make a name for yourself. But, um, you know, if you're, uh, if you're willing and able, uh, why not? You know, I was, I never, I never really thought twice about it. I just wanted to get my butt out of here and, and, uh, go chase the dream and try to, to, uh, be like my heroes. That was like, like growing up in California, like South California there, that must've been a, um, especially in that timing, like you look at, uh, culture wise, you just mentioned the word culture would have been a pretty cool place to live too, wouldn't it? You know, for me, it's home, and uh, I probably didn't uh, really uh, absorb all that until uh, after spending some years in Europe and realizing how nice it really is here. And, uh, you know, when you go away and you live in other countries and uh, you, you get used to the culture, you have to absorb it all. You know, you got to go there with, you know, with an open mind and don't go with tunnel vision expecting everything to be one way. And um, then I realized because a lot of people, when, when uh, you met new people and you were there, they would say, why are you here? What are you, you know, what were you thinking? Why would you leave Southern California to come to here? But, um, you know, I, growing up in it, it's just part of life. It's just home. And, um, as Bobby Schwartz always told me from day one is he said, just remember California is not going anywhere. It's always going to be here. It's, it's smart advice. Eh? It really is. <laughs> that was the best advice. I think it really was. And it's something that I, uh, I never forgot. And even when I had, you know, we all have our tough days or dark days and you feel like, oh man, this is not for me. And, uh, I just want to go home. And then you think back and I go, ah, well, it's yeah, California's not going anywhere. Actually, it's, it's still going to be there as long as an earthquake doesn't come and break it off, you know? <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully that doesn't happen. <laughs> so no, that's right. There will be an Island. <laughs> yeah, well, that's right. Mm -hmm. Different, different sort of place then. Was Bobby Schwartz someone that you looked up to, obviously from a kid, obviously mentioning that, that must have been a, a bit of an idol or some sort of impression, yeah? Oh, absolutely. Bobby was heavily involved. He's, he's kind of almost been a member of our family. Uh, he, My dad got involved with Bobby and when Bobby was in his late teens and early 20s. 
and um, he started coming down to race from uh, from he was he was like from Santa Barbara area, L.A., and then he started coming down to spend more time down here in the Orange County area where we are. And um, my dad ended up helping him out a little bit and and um, and just supporting him, you know. And um, through those through all of that time, our involvement in the sport became more and more. Then my brother and my older brother, Dave, he got involved in racing before I did. And uh, Bobby was very influential, was very helpful. And um, it was just one of those, he was a role model for us. You know, we, we all loved the racing and he taught us the, the, uh, all the techniques. He taught us all the, um, everything around preparing yourself for the races and, and um, how to set up your bikes, how to be a good starter. And he was really good, really hard, really straight. And um, probably, probably didn't have the, the same way of explaining things that another rider would, but the point always got across because he wanted you to do it in a specific manner. And he just like, you got to do it like this. And he was exactly right. Probably when you're younger, you don't get it. You think, God, he's so hard on me. But in the end, you realize that maybe he's just not the same guy to explain it to you that maybe a, a you know, a John Cook or a, a Bruce Penhall or a Dennis Segalis or these other guys. I was fortunate to be around a lot of really great people. And um, but Bobby's words stuck out the most uh, in those early days. And still today, a lot of those words still stick out. Um, doing that, is that something now like in your position of, of basically influence amongst other riders and mentorship, is that something that you try and shape yourself to be like, or how do you, um, shape yourself in that regards? They're, they're my role models, you know, I mean, I can't be Bobby Schwartz and I can't be Bruce Penhall, who's one of my greatest heroes and Eric Anderson and all these, there's a lot of great names out there who, who I've, uh, like I say, been fortunate and and um, to to be around or to work with, and I've never ever bitten the hand that feeds. You know, I've always looked up to every single one of these guys. So I want to be just like them, but I want to be it my way. And um, I will. I I think that I I teach these guys in the same way that I was taught. But of course, you have to adapt uh, to your own style and and uh, be like Greg. You know. It's the same as teaching the guys to ride the bike. I always tell them, too, you can't ride like me, and you can't ride like Darcy Ward, and you can't ride like, uh, you know, uh, Ty Wolfenden. You just have to take a piece, a little piece of everybody, and bring it into your your own program and find what works for you and create your own way of riding or your own technique or your own style and um, uh, build your own profile. Makes um makes perfect sense, and no matter where I sort of see um see or listen to yourself pop up in in those places, you're always paying homage or respect to um, each of those people, which is really cool to see. Like it's not uh it's not a common theme amongst everybody to pay that sort of homage to people, you know. Uh, absolutely. And that's been said to me before, but, um, you know, like I said, that's just me and now everybody's going to be like me. And, uh, I'm truly grateful for every piece of advice, help, support, uh, friendship or whatever that I've had, you know, and, and, um, that's just me. I say thank you to everybody. And I, uh, I'm always grateful and I always want to give back with interest. You know, I, I don't just say thanks and walk away. I, I always want to give something back and it's, uh, it's just me, you know, however they look at it. It's, uh, if you just take it with a grain of salt, you know, it's just, uh, yeah, I'm appreciative. 
The um, what was the first motorcycle? Was it a speedway bike, or was there something else that came into the into the household? Yeah, it was a YZ60 uh, Yamaha oh. from a motocross bike. So from I don't remember the year of that thing now because it was my brother's bike, and then it became my bike. So it was a maybe it was a seventy mid to late seventies. This motorcycle, I can't remember exactly what year it was, but. Um, and then after that, I got myself, my dad got me a, uh, a brand new XR80, 1982 XR80 uh, was my second wow. bike. But I had a Speedway bike in between there. He started building that at that time. But I definitely learned on a, on a motorcycle, you know, more of a motocross style bike. And was that just uh, like generic trail riding or something like that? Yeah. Pretty much. I was never really on on motocross tracks except for when we would go to the motorcycle parks to go ride speedway, there was always, there's always motocross tracks, you know, the pro tracks, the vet tracks, the, the amateurs, and then they had the eighties for the kids and things like that. So we were always riding. We were either trail riding out in the desert or we were riding on some of these motocross tracks, just, uh, in between doing practice on the speedway track. So the motorcycle parks were great because you could ride your speedway bike rip through it while they were cooling down. You jump on your, your motocross bike and go burn laps over at the motocross track. And it was just full solid days of riding a little bit of everything. Mate, it must've been a, um, a pretty cool time, like to be able to do everything. Basically it's not, uh, not one discipline. You're obviously grounding yourself across multiple disciplines. Must've been a pretty good way to lay a grounding. Hey, man, I, I can't, uh, I can't complain one bit. My dad, he opened up a, a whole new world for us as kids and uh, gave us so many great opportunities, always encouraged us to do other things, not just the speedway. The harder he, the harder I tried to go into the speedway, the more he tried to push me away, uh, only you know, realizing that I really wanted to do this bad. And little did I know at that time that he, it was probably just a test. And uh, I think I passed the test that I wanted to be a speedway rider. <laughs> Jeez, mate. So, uh, yeah, uh, we we had it uh, we had it made, man. It was really good times. I almost feel bad that my kids can't have quite the same. Uh, we have some motorcycle parks, but not all of them have a flat track where you can just jump on your bike and go and and ride a speedier bike and then go jump on a motocross bike. Those those days are few and far between, sadly. Like in the current in the current sort of scene over there, say like a uh, Pala Pala Raceway or something. What what is what is it like there? Can you go test test a bike like a speedway, but it'll be a different day or something like that? Is that sort of the way it is these days? I haven't actually been out to Paula for for they have a flat track out there too. They call them flat tracks. They don't call them speedway tracks because they're for the flat track bikes and speedway. Um, yeah. But they have a, a track out there. But as I understand it, it's not that good. It's not very well prepared and. Um, you know, with the motocross tracks, you know yourself that they, they're out there with a water truck and they keep watering in between sessions and it doesn't take a lot of maintenance during the practice session. But a speedway track can take a little bit of maintenance because it's you can just put water on it. But it, sometimes I think that there's not enough riders that come out to ride. So they really tend to forget about taking care and maintaining the tracks. So they yeah. get a little rough. They get a little choppy. They get a sometimes I feel like when they build the tracks that they don't put enough effort into making a good radius in the corners and thinking about the width of the, of the straightaways or the entry of the corners and they just cut it out and, and away you go, you know, and they did the same at milestones for a lot of years. And I ran out there with, with my kid a few times and I rode one time and 
think I went on the track one maximum two times and it was, it wasn't fun. So, uh, I, I'm not going to do this again. It's just, it's no fun for me when the track is so bad and it's, it's just the wrong shape. I, I don't get excited for that. So I want to go somewhere where I can really open it up and let it rip. It's, it's kind of, um, like you can excuse it in, in a time where you can't see other places around the world of what they do, but in a, in an era where you've got, um, the internet to see other places, you should be able to find out what's, what works and what doesn't work quite easily. Hey, without slagging anyone, you that, know. That, that is a pretty common feel, you know? Uh, you, you hit the nail on the head there. You know, it's like, there's so much information out there. Right. And, and, um, you know, they just built a new track here too at Elsinore. You seem pretty aware of all the tracks out here. So Elsinore, they built another flat track out there and they're building two tracks. One will be like a quarter mile and the other one will be just a smaller one that, um, that'll be similar to our normal American size. And, um, the same, I can't tell by the shape of it yet. I'm just looking off the, off the internet photos that my, my buddy Kelly is running a lot of the show out there and, um, it, it looks the same. You're like, okay, it's, they don't have any good dirt on it yet. It's just clay based, but hard to see. It looks like the fairly long straights, pretty tight corners, which can be fun. But I, I t- kept telling Kelly too, just make sure you get somebody to go ride around it and just feel the track a little bit. I said, you know, he's been around enough tracks himself and, and raced himself. I said, just drive your car on the track and just drive it around and put yourself in race mode and think if you were going into the corner where you would lean into the corner, where you would set it up, kind of twisting your body and where you would make your apex and where you would drive it out of the corner like this. And just try to imagine it and you'll get an idea. You can get a feel for the way the track should be set up. And uh, so you don't get this long straightaway and you got to turn it so hard that the bike's going to go backwards or you can't make the corner. Um, Flat track bikes are different and these are designed for both speedway and flat track. So we come into the corner with carrying a lot more speed than a flat tracker. And uh, those guys come in on the brakes they're down on the front steering on the front wheel and um, it, it makes a difference. So, uh, you know, long story short, it's just do your homework a little bit and, and really try to think about this. And before they make the final cuts, really get somebody that can give you some feedback. Cause there's no universal, is there? There's no, this is the, you know, it's not going to suit everybody, every bike, but then these, there's, exactly. there is like, a, there's like a, uh, there's like a little groove that you get into, which, which is the perfect amount for a speedway bike, and then maybe a little tolerance for a flat track bike that's a little bit different, you know? Yeah, exactly right. And like you said, there is no, there are no ground rules except for uh, minimum lengths or width of the straight, yeah. width of the corners, and uh, pretty much that's it, right? And then you can get every size, shape, whatever you want. And there's some unbelievable racetracks around the world. And, um, now working, I've been working in Wroclaw now in Poland too, with the club, and they are very, very interested in, in even changing their track. And that track is phenomenal right now, but they want to make it even better and asking my opinion and how to change that and what they can do. So, uh, you know, there's still big things ahead and really fun to work with people that are just, they're, they're looking beyond all the time. They're not just thinking for the moment. Tell me about Poland. What what's this like? Obviously, that's the scene at the moment. I guess you'd say, what's it like? Yeah, I mean everybody everybody knows Speedway and they know Poland and you know you got the world champion there and uh, it's all true, man. It's it's uh, it's insane. It's you take a 
a guy from from Queensland, you take a guy from Southern California, you know, really fantastic places in the world, but Speedway is like, it's barely, it's like a speck on a flower, you know, <laughs> it's just, uh, it's so small for, for a lot of us. And then you go to Poland and suddenly you are like a superstar overnight. You come in, you're in the press, you're, you know, people recognize you in a, in a supermarket, in a gas station, you're driving your car and they're honking the horn when they pass you and you're like, Literally, you go from you're just a normal everyday uh, John Doe here, and then you go there, and you're you know you're you're as Zlatan for soccer. You're like it's it's amazing. It really is. It's um, it's great. The, the fans are very passionate about the sport. They they absolutely love it, and it's not just guys and girls. I mean, guys at the races. It's guys and girls. It's a it's a real interesting mix. You know mm. they. Most of the time, Speedway takes place on a Sunday, and you know it's a very Catholic country. So people get up in the morning, they they go to church, they have their food, and the highlight of the day is they finish at the Speedway. And that's no lie; it's they come there dressed like they just. A lot of people just came from church, and you're like, "Wow, it's um, it's pretty serious." And you feel their excitement, you feel their sorrow, you feel their pain when it doesn't go the way they want it to go. And um, it's just, it's epic, man. It really, really is. Great speedway tracks, very, very stiff competition. You have all calibers from from kids to, you know, obviously very advanced world champions. And um, they have a really interesting feeding program. So they're, they're bringing the kids up from a very young age. And they're, the club scene in Poland is, is something that um, is the key for the success. You know, they... They have clubs that kids can just, you don't come in there and, and uh, bring your bikes into the club and go racing for them. You actually come there and you have to find a place in the club working on, on equipment, learning how the scene works, working with other riders and you have to be around and they kind of just, you know, if, if me and a couple of buddies showed up there when we were, you know, 10 years old or even younger, uh, they kind of just turn you loose in the workshop in a sense and give you a couple of jobs to do. And they just watch you and see how you work, see what skills you have. If you're, if you're good with your hands, if you're not good with your hands and that's kind of how they fizzle you out and, wow. um, or narrow you down to where this guy will be a good rider or this guy, maybe this guy would be better just for working with bikes and learning how it all goes. You know, it's really interesting how, how they do it. So there's like a grading, not a grading system, but it's like a, like a technical system to get into riding a bike, basically. Yeah, and I, uh, a grading system is kind of funny. It's uh, in a sense, it is like that. They kind of they analyze and they they find a place for you, or you probably just end up not being there. You know, you go away where they this ah you we don't have any use for you. It's kind of it's kind of a hard school, but it is kind of how it is. It's things are a little bit different today than they used to be because the the sport is so professional. You have professional contracts. It used to be very club like, where every club's got one or two mechanics there that can build engines and do everything. And I feel like that part has kind of been diluted a little bit. It's not as great as it was. Uh, however, you know when I when I change my hat now, you know I'm not the rider anymore. I'm kind of a I'm a coach, kind of rider coach. Uh, mediator. I'm, I feel like I'm one of those guys in the club pretty much and trying to look at the whole picture of, 
of these kids that have just shown up there, rough slop. There aren't that many. There's only a few. And for me, that's what's missing. Perhaps the demand for good juniors, you know, that the juniors are, are the, they win the match or they lose the match for the club. Most of the time you can see that now in the way the clubs are set up, all the riders are so good, you know, one to five and then six and seven in the team are your reserves, which are two young Polish riders or under 21. If you don't have two good juniors, you're, you're going to struggle. And the juniors, the good juniors are um, getting bought and sold in between clubs. Whoever, so they, I mean, their demands go up to a certain extent. However, uh, if you don't have a good junior, they're so nervous um, that I think some people, they need to win now, right? Once the season starts, if they haven't got the goods, there's nothing you can do, really, except I think what we're doing in Rotslav now is to really working with the younger ones further down the line and trying to develop. We have to think about next year. We can't think about today because today's here. You know, it's uh, you know we're going to think about tomorrow right now and kind of build this and try to create a, a much longer lasting club. And that's what's great so far with Rotslav. I'm really impressed. They, they're very demanding. They're a very professional club. Things are – the amount of people that are working in that club doing different jobs, it's phenomenal. It's it's like a soccer club for Speedway. They Everybody's got their place, and it's from media to technical to mechanical to uh, promotion to sponsorship. I mean, it's, uh, it's really, really well organized. And the part that they were missing is having somebody to really develop the youngsters. The team manager has got a lot on his plate, which is Darek Sledge. He's got a, you know, a mediator. He's the coach. He's the manager. He's got to talk to the boss and, and make everything work. And if it doesn't go good, the first guy that gets blamed is him, you know, so he gets blamed for everything. And uh, so me coming in there just as an independent coach consultant for the club, uh, you know, it took time to analyze and figure out who's got what and the potential and what riders are doing what. And um, really fun to kind of slow everybody down and back up. And we got to think about tomorrow. And in that process of developing and working with these guys, you're starting to see that the youngsters in the team, our juniors are not the probably the two best juniors in the league, but by giving them the correct tools, or maybe I, I can't say the correct tools, giving them some tools to, to work with and showing them or letting them know how important they are for the team. And that it doesn't matter if you're Magic Yanofsky, Ty Wolfenden, Artem Laguda, Juganov, or Dan Buley. These are like five names in that team. And getting everybody on the same page, working together and talking at the same level, uh, it's just turning things around and it's going really really well that could change but uh right now they all understand because magic comes and he's probably the the best one of all of them uh for the point of he comes to the a lot of the practices he gets out on the track and he practices with the youngsters he goes to the tapes with them does starts wow. with them um passes them gets passed by them and just rubs elbows with them. I mean, that that's the stuff I used to like to do too, but he does it even more so than I did because I was always kind of like, oh, I don't want to get hurt if I do something wrong. But I was, you pretty much, you bring the level of confidence up with the youngsters by going out there and standing next to them going, hey, you want to do a start with me and do a few laps? 
and suddenly you just see that their shoulders go up and they just their eyes light up and bam you have um you have competition within the team every junior rider wants to be better than the next one and helping each other at the same time it's it's phenomenal do you feel um like four time four world championships right do you feel like that carries some sort of aura uh, around when when you're in a place like this that the kids can still approach you um like are people nervous or not nervous, but it's such a huge thing to accomplish um, in a sport. It carries a lot of weight on your own shoulders. Do you, do you feel that sometimes when you're at a place that they, not that they can't approach, but it might feel a bit standoffish from a kid because they feel that you mightn't be approachable, but you are approachable. Does that make sense? You know, it's, it, it probably does. I'm a humble guy, you know, so I don't, uh, I don't look at it in, in such a big way like that, but they were all much more nervous. Uh, not, not, not the, the top guys, but some of them are a little bit more nervous uh, when you first get there because they're trying to figure you out and they're trying to think, Oh, what does this guy, uh, you know, he's like maybe a star status to a certain extent, the youngsters. Yep. And once they realized that I was a normal guy, and that they could approach me, and I never came in and told anybody, "You need to do this. You need to do that. You should do this." I'm not that kind of guy. I, I kind of sit back and watch and see where I can help them, and then approach them carefully and promote a little bit of advice and ask them for, "Hey, can I give you a piece of advice?" You know, nine times out of ten they say yes, or probably nine and a half times out of ten they say, "Of course." Yeah. Uh, and you start from there and you, you, some, some people are baby steps and some people are go for the throat and they, they go for it. And it's been, uh, I think that part of it is realizing that I'm on the same team with them. I'm a regular guy, you know, of course I've, I've had a good run and I've, I've got a good, uh, history in the sport and world titles always help, you know? So, uh, for me, it's as long as they are open to advice and absorbing it, then I've got plenty to offer. So is that like a fly-in, fly-out type? Because uh, we've been talking about doing this for a little bit, um, obviously. Is that sort of what you're doing now? You're sort of going there for a little bit of time? Is that is that how it works? Yeah, exactly. I go there on a week-to-week basis. So uh, the um, I go like the first couple of weeks of the year I went – Probably it was a little bit late, but because of COVID, you can't do too much. So I went for two weeks and then came back here for a week and then went back for, I was only scheduled to be there for three weeks and ended up being there four weeks. Um, and then they just call me as an, as in when needed basis. And, uh, you know, we have a kind of a program that we'll work with, um, depending on how things keep going in the team. Um Formed up in the beginning of the year with the right approach, a good mental approach to the season. And um, once I get kicked off, kind of just top up a few things and then come in, come in a little bit later in the year to go in and, and work on different um, different ideas and, and approaches that I, I feel are important for different times of the season with weather changes and track conditions. Uh, um, there's, there's always something small you can do. And once everybody gets rolling in the season, it's, it's real easy to get complacent and just keep doing the same routine all the time. But 
um, you can be one of those guys or you can still be on a mission to be that little bit better than everyone else. Intriguing. Yeah, because it's uh, a lot of it, it would be a fresh, uh, a fresh way of looking at some of these pathways, I guess, as well, hey? I think so. I, I think it's, um, for me, I was, I was crazy, you know, I, to get into a routine was, uh, it's nice to have a routine, but at the same time, routines scare me because I just feel I don't want to just be doing the same thing every single day. Then it's like a, it's like going to work nine to five and that I don't, I never looked at Speedway as a job, you know, it was a, it was a career, it was an adventure. It was, uh, the opportunity for success, you know? So I, I was always trying to win no matter what I wanted to do. And, my mechanics probably got frustrated with me from time to time because I always had another idea and I wanted to make another practice session. And sometimes you only need to go on the track for five, you know, five minutes and that we were done. I just needed to try it and clear my mind. And, um, and that's how it worked. But I think a lot of guys uh, these days too, they, they get so reliant on their equipment that a lot of dudes, there's, there's some, some Aussie dudes too that, uh, you know, they, you think that you got, everything is in your bikes and if you've got a good motor and you've got a good chassis that you can win anything. And that's not actually the truth. You know, you, everybody's got good motors and everybody's got good bikes these days in the, in the leagues and you have to be prepared to accept, uh, and that you can be better in yourself. Otherwise you're going to get left behind and um a lot of american guys are like that there's a lot of british guys the same and um you know it's just common it's just what it is uh, it doesn't mean that i'm any better just um yeah i just worked hard for what i got it's um it's a pretty common theme uh and you see it uh and you've mentioned a couple of different nations there where the riders finish a year and then all of a sudden the results were good but we're going to just go change to something completely different. We're going to get a different tuner or we're going to do this. That, that must be, yeah, it must be so difficult to go down that pathway. Uh, yeah, it is, you know, you, I was a very loyal guy in my career working with, with manufacturers and engine tuners. And I, um, you know, if I was working with one guy, I, 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 I never took my engines from one tuner and gave them to another tuner and things like that. I, so I, I, you know, in the early years, you're just trying to figure stuff out and you can't afford to do much. So you're just going afford to do, but as you get established and you understand how it works, um, if I was going to go to another tuner, you know, I Hey, I'm going to try something else. That doesn't mean that your stuff is not working, but, uh, it's nice to know what you got. And sometimes mm. you have to, you don't want to be left in the weeds and there might be something out there that somebody's doing that is that little bit different that works really good for you. Might not work good for you, but it works good for me. And, um, uh, I never wanted to be left in the weeds. So I always had to buy something from someone else every year. I would buy at least one from someone else just to compare what I had and see if there was somebody doing a new technology, you know, and, and figuring it out. And if it didn't work, then, you either gave it back to the tuner or you said, I'm going to sell it to somebody. Is that okay? And, uh, I was always very straight like that. Not all of them are like that, but that was just me. Isn't it, um, one of the special things about the sport that you can do that? Like you imagine Valentino Rossi now, uh, want to try a Ducati tomorrow or, you know, like, or want to try a Suzuki or something. 
that's one of the really neat parts about Speedway, isn't it? You can go and buy something different. Well, those guys are getting paid to ride a, you know, a factory motorcycle of, of some kind and development and all that kind of stuff. We're not getting paid by anybody to ride a specific bike. We're getting paid by a team to score points for the team and sponsors that there, there's no, uh, Jawa, Jawa had good deals where they would offer, you know, give you equipment, but you could tune it wherever you wanted. Uh, wow. however, you couldn't be riding a GM if you're riding a Jawa, you're exactly right there. But these days, I mean, no, no manufacturer gives anybody, uh, anything unless, unless you win a world championship and then you get, you know, GM, for instance, you get nothing from GM except discounts and support. Um, but you know, nothing is for free from them. You have to win a world championship in order to get free product. Wow. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. GM has a standing deal with all riders that if you win the world championship on a, on a GM engine, then there's a free product sponsorship for the following year. So, but you have to win before you get it. (laughs) Yeah. It's a big deal. It's a big thing to win. How, how did you make your step over from the USA originally? Uh, I, I had first, the first offer went via uh, Bruce Penhall. He set up a deal for me with um, Cradley Heath and Colin Pratt was the team manager back then. And, and they were here, they were over here for the world team cup at Long Beach in 1985. And um, Bruce had been speaking with, uh, with the promoters at that point. And then they came over again in 1988 for the world team cup. And by that point, I was a little more established in my five. Um, I was offered a, a chance to come over and do a trial run at the end of that year, and um, which Bruce set up for me. So I, uh, I set it up for myself and Billy Hamill to go over there. And we did a trial run with, with Eric Gunderson. Stayed, uh, we stayed with Lance King and, and used Eric Gunderson's bikes and did a trial run at the end of 1988 just to, to test the water a little bit. And uh, I think they used it as a comparison to see which rider they wanted to take, myself or Billy Hamill at that point, uh, if they had the opportunity for the following season. Mm-hmm. And um, as it turned out, they, they had a place available. They, they offered it to Billy Hamill first. Uh, and Billy turned it down. So they came to me and I was like, hell yeah, I'm out of here. You know, <laughs> I just went. And um Started in May of 1989, just just a little bit into the season, and when the averages worked out, I think there was a little bit of fiddling there at some point where they were trying to fit it in so they could get me in the team, and um, yeah, then I went and uh, you know struggled there for some years and injuries and all that kind of fun stuff, but it worked out okay. Yeah, I was, I was interested to know what the what the pathway was, you know how how the because usually it takes a door to open to get to get anywhere you know um yeah i was wondering what that door was so bruce saying yeah pretty much and i think uh, i don't think bruce made the phone call i think that um colin pratt had contacted bruce and mm. uh spoke to him and said hey you know we're looking for a new uh young rider for the team and uh what what's available what who who do you recommend you know and then of course that's where it all started Having in 88, 89, or oh, around that late 80s period there, having the Speedway come to the US, was there much of a scene there at that time? There must have been a bit to have that happening, obviously. Things were going good back We're still, 
Uh, it wasn't quite as big as it was in the early 80s there when we had such a presence overseas. And obviously, Bruce Penhall was winning individual world titles. The American team was yep. winning world team cups and, and all sorts of stuff. And uh, But it started to, f- to kind of... 85, I think by that point, it started to kind of just phase out a little bit. It wasn't quite as big, but there was still a, there was still a good scene. There was still a lot going on. And um, we had the, uh, I think that, you know, th- there was enough young writers over here at that point. When you look back on it, you had Ronnie Corey was getting, was already over there, I think at that stage. And obviously Sam Malenko, Lance King, Rick Miller, both of the Moran brothers, um, and I don't want to leave anybody out here. Robert Fetzing, Bobby Otts. There was a lot of guys there at this point when I went, and um, it was, you know, to be one of them, you were in good company. There was a lot of Americans on the scene. There, it was still buzzing, you know, and there was still this. Everybody was trying to get to Europe. It was really, and it was really tough. There wasn't enough places, and the demands are high. You have to score at least six points to get your work permit. And at that point, that time, there was. You know, it was it was tough to hold a six point average, really, really tough. And um, uh, it was just it was a good system. You know, we were racing here four or five nights a week in Southern California. So, you know, for me, riding Wednesday night, Thursday night, Friday night, Saturday night, um, there was even the occasional Tuesday nights as well. So we were doing the better part of 100 races a year here in Southern California. It was it was a lot of racing. Wow, that's really yeah, that's clocking up those hours, hey. Like training time. Dude, it was crazy. It was really crazy. And I, you know, I've been my kid just turned 16, so he's getting his driver's license this week and uh, you know, we're always talking about summer jobs and and earning your money <laughs> and you got to get some gas money and and uh, you know, it got to the point where my dad couldn't afford to <laughs> send me racing anymore. He He's like, man, you know, it's expensive to go and do it all and tires and entry fees. And so uh, fortunately, from the automotive paint industry where he's from, uh, I picked up a couple of small sponsors that were they were buying race suits for me or helping me pay for my tires or paying for my entry fees. And then uh, I changed schools too to, a, to a, another high school here and had a, a work experience program. So I could go to school from 730 in the morning until 11:30 midday and i'd go for a half an hour lunch and then i would go to work and work at my mom was working at a, an automotive paint store too she managed a, uh, a few paint stores in her lifetime and uh, she got me a job delivering paint there so i i started um working i'd go to work mondays and tuesdays i'd work from basically 12 to 5 every after every day so and then i'd go home work on my bikes do my homework whatever i had to do go to school the next day and Wednesday mornings I had to be at school at 6 30 till 11 30 one day a week I had to go from my work experience program and report everything I did over the last week so for me it was working and then uh on Wednesday nights uh, Wednesdays I'd go to school till 11 30 go to lunch sometimes I'd just have lunch on the go because I wanted that extra half an hour of work and I'd go work from you know 11 30 or 12 or say basically 12 o'clock until 3 or 3 30 I'd run home, finish putting my bike together, load them up in the truck and go racing. And, you know, Southern California traffic is nothing to play with. You know, it's getting on the freeway at at, uh, five o'clock in the afternoon. It's just murder. And the races started at eight, had about an hour, an hour and a half drive out to San Bernardino on Wednesday night. 
uh, and then come home from the races, get home 11.30 or something midnight, strip my bike down, clean the parts, up at 6, go to school, go to work, wow. come home, try to finish it all up, load it up, go racing. I, everything was just, you know, I'd get up early in the morning and, and just power wash it, you know, or wash it and just get it together and go racing Thursday night at Ascot, which is another you know 40 minutes away did the same thing come home and then friday nights was here at costa mesa so i could work an extra half an hour because the the track was in costa mesa which is down the street from us and I had all saturday to clean everything up and then go racing out of victorville which is another hour and a half away and then sunday was clean everything again to try to get it ready for wednesday and then school will work and it's just how it worked you know and it was it, it sounds when you're young, I was I was making money and yeah, I was making keep my speeder racing going and but you know if I as I started to get better I started making money winning main events and being consistent and then uh, yeah then I was able to pay rent and all that kind of stuff and yeah away you go. It's funny when you look like you, you've you've lived a life of traveling around doing this forever now like this is forever, but what you do now compared to then. Um, and, and my own experiences, thinking of nearly what you did there on a small scale of working here and that at that age, but you still had time. Now, if you went to try and do that schedule, you just think, you'd throw your hands up in there and think, Where, where's time now? Hey. <laughs> yeah, because uh, you got to have time for you social imagine? media too, right? <laughs> of course, you do. You need 20 hours a day. No, but it's crazy to think where where you how – how did you fit that in? You just did, man. I yeah. you know, I think at one point there was uh, one of my one of my buddies too, Jesse Finch, uh, who I raced with in junior speedway. And um, But he, he went through kind of a, um, a, a tough period in life there when we were in our – mid-teens there with with school and stuff and got involved in some stuff he probably uh shouldn't have done but you know at one point i i was giving him a little bit of and um and he would wash my bike for me and uh clean it up and start putting it's a week uh while i was at school and work and i'd come home and it would be ready to go and then uh it made my life a lot easier you know but um, we had a lot of fun, you know, it's just, that's what friends and buddies and, um, it just life, the life school, the life experience that we got out of it. And you learned about respect. You learned about, you know, having each other's back and, and you learned about true friends, what, you know, what you can do for each other. So it really was, um, it really was a life school, uh, in very a cool story, mate. Very, yeah. Very, uh, humbling story of that sort of era you know, I think as well. It's, uh, it was really cool. You know, it was just when you're young, you know, we talk about it today too. I don't know if you have kids, but when you've got kids, they are so innocent and they speak their mind, you know, and that's really how we should be. So if they don't like something, they tell you, I don't like it. Or if they don't like somebody, they say, that guy's a, you know, that guy's a jerk or I don't like that guy. He did this or he did that or, you know, and it's like, maybe it's not the proper way, but they just say it as it is. And it's no big deal. They don't mean any harm. They just say it because yeah, I don't yeah. like him. <laughs> you know, you're like, yeah, I guess that's kind of true. But you know, my buddies back then, even when they went through hard times, maybe they shouldn't have been doing what they were doing or they got mixed up, whether it was drugs or alcohol or, 
didn't go to school or failing or whatever. You're like, they should have done this and they should have done that. But you always had their back and you always like tried to encourage them to come on, bro. You know, and, um, you know, a true friend is you can give them give them some shit. (laughs) And and, uh, (laughs) the next day you're still buddies. (laughs) 100 percent. Absolute 100 percent. Now, coming from South California, obviously, um, and some helmet designs over the years and saying your family was in paint businesses. When did you cross paths? Did you? And when did you cross? If so, when did you cross paths with Troy Lee? Uh, we had been, my parents were family friends with Troy's mom and dad. So uh, um, we're, we're more family friends than acquaintances, acquaintances like that. So yeah. um, Larry, Larry, Lee, Troy's dad and my dad were buddies. My dad was a, a painter himself custom painting and did some striping never the the quality that larry was uh, troy's dad um but uh, my brother and troy are sim more similar age a little bit older and um and we were friends with another family down in balboa island here in southern california where my dad was living my parents were split up from a young age so we would spend time with my dad down in Balboa. Um, and there was a family called the Busby family, Jim Busby, who was a former car racer. And uh, his kids I raced Speedway with too. And they had a house right on the bayfront uh, in Balboa and with a dock out in front of their house, a really nice area. And Troy Lee's dad, Larry, had a, a I don't remember how big that boat was. Maybe it's a 50, 40, 50 foot woody, old woody boat. Could be even bigger. I can't remember. I think it always felt big as a kid. But he lived on the boat with the kids, with Troy and his brother and sister. They lived on a boat outside Balboa, and um, they they didn't really go to school. They were taught from. They went to school at younger ages, but their dad ended up schooling them at home, and uh, for the most part. And then uh, you know we spent a lot of time down there hanging out with them and swimming in the bay and jumping off their boat and and all that kind of stuff. So. Um, watching Troy start his business, my dad taught Troy Lee how to paint, which is a real cool story. And it's a uh, very, very small period in life. And, uh, my dad would never say that he taught Troy, he taught Troy how to spray with a spray gun, painting cars and stuff like that. And then, uh, that's about it. Then Troy went on and, you know, obviously has become something massive, but, but Troy's very appreciative and in the way that I think I am with people too. And um, he's always pays a compliment to my dad and tells a lot of people that my dad taught him how to paint. So they put my dad on, he puts my dad on a big pedestal and he doesn't need to do that, but he does. So uh, you can imagine surrounding yourself with people like Troy Lee goes a long way. A hundred percent. That's a, that's a, that's a cool story. I didn't know there was that sort of connection. I just thought, obviously from the the area and then some of the helmets you've ran over the years that there must be something some sort of connection there but uh that's pretty damn cool it's really cool and troy i mean he started in his garage he moved to an airplane hangar out in corona california there and um i started using his visors back you know in the early 80s there mid 80s when he was working out of the airplane hangar in corona so it's been really fun supporting him and watching him grow because today he's still the same exact guy that he was back then. He's just wow. a hell of a lot more busy. He doesn't have the time that he used to and 
that's a lot of demand and um but he loves his job and the best i think for him the most fun part about it is working with so many great racers around the world and uh athletes and he loves painting he still loves striving he loves art he's an amazing artist you know motorcycles and and helmets and all that kind of stuff the guys he's uh He's an artist, you know, and they're all, they are different. They are different than you and I. <laughs> they are. They are indeed. They uh, they fit in a different bracket, but it's a uh, magical bracket, you know? Yeah. But he's so positive. He's the, he's a good energy, you know? You, you, you feel like you're, you're walking on air, you know? He just, he has a natural aura. He loves Speedway, um, you know, and he's just, uh, it's no wonder that he's friends with so many big names around the world. And you'd, I know people, people, I think, you know, you can't, you, you couldn't put a price tag on what he's done for people uh, and, you know, what it would cost to get your paint job on, on a, a top Indy car or an F1 driver's, you know, head that was, uh, Troy manages to do that just because people want his paint job as much as he likes doing it for him. Very, very true. Now, yeah, like, uh, for for people that are listening to like everyone asks Greg Hancock about the four world titles and this and that. That's why there's different questions coming through. I wanted to find out things about like Troy Lee and stuff like that. So I hope this isn't boring you either, Greg. Where I'm just trying to get some just different stuff along the way. Not at all, man. Yeah, you know, guys like Troy Lee, I can talk about all day long. You know, he's just he's been a big inspiration for me. He's helped me a lot. Uh, I worked with him in business and distributed for him in, in Sweden. And so, uh, you know, I'm a Troy Lee guy for right. life, no matter how you look at it. I just, I'm the biggest fan. I'm the biggest supporter and, uh, um, yeah, it's a great product. He's just, an, he's a, he's a great dude. Really, really is. Now, how did you come about with monster? What's the story there? Uh, it's a long story. Um, uh, I'll make it short for you. Just a friend, um, a friend of mine in, in Sweden had had an idea to in the early days about bringing Monster to Sweden. There, when I was uh, based over there for a lot of years, and mm. um, I just I thought he was crazy. I'm like, come on, you can't do that. But I think at one point they ended up. He was buying. He had a motorcycle business, like a motorcycle motocross parts business. He was selling parts and and. Um, at one point they were, they were buying, you know, pallets of monster here and at one of the, um, price club, the big warehouse stores and putting, buying pallets of monster, putting them in a container, shipping them, shipping them to Sweden and they take them to the races. Uh, and he'd sell them. He'd probably sell a, a container load of, of monster in one or two days of racing, you know, and, and making a, a pretty penny out of it back when you could. Wow. And, uh, so, um, as it evolved over the years, we we managed to you know come up with an idea to. He said, "Let's let's bring Monster to Sweden, and then start the distribution here." So we we started looking into it, and uh, one of the first guys I spoke to on the phone was Joe Parsons, Monster Joe, because mm -hmm. um, Bruce Penhall gave me the contact to Joe. He was already doing a lot of stuff with him, uh, with his kids and their programs and. And, um, at that point, Joe was, he was in the marketing side of things and he couldn't help me too much except, uh, point me in a direction that we should go to, to look into this. Uh, and I didn't know Joe at this point at all. So in the end, I ended up going through the 
basically through the front door and calling their their head offices and and got through to somebody to find out how we could look into this. We had a, a consortium of people that were interested in in being a part of this um, this distribution business, and uh, we got in contact with them. And at that point, as we found out, they were just setting up the head offices in Europe, uh, which was going to be in the UK as it is today. And uh, so we were just we were early to the game. And um, as it turned out, we we managed to set within the next six months to set up a, a meeting with them in, in London. And we flew over there to meet the, the new consortium of people and um, managed over time. We set up our, a distribution business with them from like 2008, I think it was. And um, we had a contract for three years to start the distribution with them. And it took off from there, you know, so it was basically learning everything. And we had, you know, myself and, and my buddy Lars, who was uh, the motocross guy, who had the idea and then we had an entrepreneur who was great at building the business. And we had a guy from the grocery industry who had the, the chains to, to the grocery business. So it started like that narrowed down to just the three of us. The grocery guy ended up hopping off and, um, and we ran with it for three years and all the act, it was a, it was a blast. Um, you know, I was racing at that time too. So I was doing more of the marketing side of stuff and, uh, doing this on the side and um, but being involved, it was really, really fun learning a new business distribution and working with groceries, gas stations, bars, restaurants, you know, I mean, you name it. And the gaming, the gaming industry was growing then, too. So it was really fun to do all that, all the activation, all the events. You know, it, it was a party within everything. It was just a blast. Um, and then at the end of the three years, at that point, Coca-Cola was becoming very popular in the business side of distribution with monster around the world. And we were one, only one of maybe four, I think countries, if I got it, the numbers right, I can't remember exactly that had our own distribution, uh, Swedish distribution from a different company. Uh, otherwise monster that Coca-Cola was distributing for them in other countries around Europe, but monster, uh, Coca-Cola had, had bought a lot of shares in the company and were expanding their distribution. So, Pretty much at the end of the three years, our contract just didn't get renewed because Coca-Cola was taking it over. So that was distribution side of Monster. Through the, wow. all of that, I was meeting all of the people. I was advertising for Monster, but because I had a business interest, I couldn't be sponsored by the company. So as the business side of it went out, the sponsorship developed uh, with Joe Parsons, who at that point had just been relocated to Europe and took over the a lot of their um, their activation of and finding new markets, and Joe came into Speedway, being a Southern California guy himself. Um, he contacted me pretty early, and we started talking about um, uh, the possibilities of setting up a contract, which I got from 2011. And um, yeah, I had a World Championship year that year too, so things started to escalate from there. And and um, yeah, I had a great. Six, super successful run with Monster and met some great people, traveled the world, done some, have <laughs> been uh, invited to some in, insane events that, you know, you, I probably never would have seen had it not been for Monster. So uh, I'm eternally grateful to them as well, having the opportunity opening new doors and, you know, rubbing shoulders with some high profile uh, sports athletes around the world. It's been, it's been a heck of a run. That's pretty cool. Like it's uh, not 
not a uh, not just a sponsorship opportunity. You were you're part of the brand uh, as a as a business entity for for three years. That's pretty big, isn't it? It was awesome. It was a lot of fun. You know, it's um, I you know, there's a there's a lot of time and money and stuff that, yep. that goes with all of that stuff. But um, it was uh, I learned something and I learned a lot about business and learned a lot about distribution and learned a lot about energy drinks. So it was um, uh, it was it was pretty cool, man. And um, you know, great relationships today. And uh, the company stuck with me through through the, the situation with my wife's illness and maintained their their the last two years, which was, um, you know, it says a lot about the company. They, uh, they really get involved with their athletes. They're not just a, a sticker and a paycheck. No, it's a, the morals that are obviously there to, to obtain, to maintain that um, sponsorship. And that's pretty huge. Yeah, for sure. And you know me, I'm not the kind of guy that uh, I don't bite that hand. I, uh, I do whatever I can and then some to, uh, to give back. Definitely. I seen you, it was the day after you wrapped up your, um, your world title in Melbourne, you're down at Phillip Island for the MotoGP. Now, the humble person that you are, um, we, like I was amazed to stand there and talk to Greg Hancock. It was huge in, in my own eyes. And the humble person you are said, oh, I'm nobody. Like there's Valentino Rossi's and that here in the world. They're the, they're the famous ones around here. And I was like, wow, that's... <laughs> Basically, in the hour that we've been talking, that's exactly the person you are. What's some of the crazy times, like you've mentioned a few monster sort of uh, do's there, what's been one of the real intriguing things of a person you've met, an event, something like that? What's been one of the really uh, outstanding events that you've been to, I guess? Uh, oh, it's hard to say which one is the most substantial but uh because i you know doing moto gps in the bond and and doing rally cross and doing um i didn't get to do any formula one with monster but um done a lot done goodwood got to ride up the hill to goodwood during the festival of speed and probably still to the day the most crazy um radical ridiculous insane things i ever did with monster was going to the isle of man and uh mm -hmm. standing next to john mcginnis who i already knew john uh seeing the isle of man and watching it on tv is one thing but to see it live and to stand next to john mcginnis literally two or he took off to go <laughs> try to set the fastest time around the island again and see the facial expression and to see his mood change when the two minute buzzer went off and basically put his helmet on, kiss his wife, put his helmet on, helmet on, say a couple of things to the man upstairs and then get on the bike and take off. Like you just, you felt the emotions, you felt the nerves, you felt the stress, you felt um the love and then just go out there and go like hell for that lap around the island try to be the quickest dude around there and going and they took us around gordon perriman who's a uh, become a, a quite an, a good friend uh, over the years as uh, a british guy he, i met him at pool where i was racing there he lives on the isle of man and he actually picked up myself and uh lance king went with me to this and his and his wife 
and uh, he took us for a trip around the island in his car. And uh, you know, he was he was at some pretty high speeds, and by you know, motorcycle guys passing us at extremely fast paces and you go around and you think there's no way this is part of the circuit you know and yes it's wow. it's insane so the, the thing that stands out the most is going through all the streets you've probably seen isle of man yourself and i mean they're racing on regular roads in in on the island there which you know um, british roads for instance yeah everything's narrow and tight and then there's brick walls and there's <laughs> this and that and i i remember there was there was pads around the light posts. They had pads around these mm. light posts. And then, you know, there was, as they're coming down, there's like a brick, uh, you know, an entryway to a driveway. And there's a brick wall here and a brick wall there. As the driveway comes down and you turn in off the street to go in there. And then there's half brick wall and the light post are further down. And there's pads on the light post, but there's no pads on the walls. And I, I remember I said to Gordon, I said, um, why are there pads on the light post, but not on the brick wall? And he said, the, the rumor is it on around the island that the pads are on the light post to protect the light post. Oh, jeez. Oh, so place, I was eh? like, oh, God. He goes, there's no reason why there should be pads on those light posts because, you know, I mean, I mean the brick wall would cut you in half, but yeah. <laughs> it was just, I, I never... I, I just remember watching that and seeing them come past. I got to watch it from Rose's garden there and we went around different places to see it. And I just remember the, the sheer panic and, and I was so excited, but I was so scared. And just mm. after the thing was over, you walk out and you go sit in the motorhome, which, you know, and it's there and he's hanging out and he'll have a beer with you after the race. You know, you're like, <laughs> unbelievable i just that will forever be the top thing that i've ever done in my life without a doubt and i've done some really cool stuff thanks to monster energy that's incredible that's truly uh yeah that must be you've you've raced speedway bikes yeah for 45 years um that to 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 come back and say something like that that must have been just yeah next level you know insane insane yep. an incredible record that he carried around that that place you know it was 52 wins or some miraculous thing you know for the for the island and how long was he was the fastest guy around there for a long time you know and or set the yep. record uh it just yeah it's insane how far how uh how far are you into other bike sports like obviously speedway has been your chosen sport for all this time are you into well, other motorsports for that level you into other stuff as well? Yeah, but I'm an amateur in everything. You know, I, I can't say that I'm a, a master of knowledge on, on MotoGP or motocross. And motocross, I, I probably more into than anything because we have so much of it right here on our doorstep and always for cross from a young age. And, um, and um, yeah, yeah we, obviously we have the Anaheim Supercross, which is just down the street from us. And, and um yeah, it's been great. I, I love that pretty much. I like MotoGP. Probably got more into that as uh, being involved in, in um, again with Monster because you start to get closer to other sports that you don't normally get close to, and then you the real respect for the type of motorcycle racing. Even though I have I have the respect, it was like opened up a whole new door, and you realize that these guys are all regular dudes like you and I, and 
they're um, they're really really good at what they do, and they go really fast, and they do you know ridiculous things on a motorcycle. So, uh, and that's just motorcycles, you know. Then you throw the cars in, and and with rallycross and and uh, even monster trucks, you know, come into those, and and then some Formula One in the early years before I even had her. And it's uh, yeah, you just you you learn to respect people for what they're good at. Was um was four wheel speedway or four wheels ever an option for you? Um, I don't think I ever really had the desire to go race four wheels to really get involved in it. I I've always mm. loved it and whatever, but I was so streamlined with speedway and two wheels and sliding and drifting, and that was me. You know, I I didn't have I really didn't have any interest in doing anything else because yeah. I just thought um, speedway had so you're in full control you're just sitting on it and you're moving your body and i was sliding my bicycles around everywhere at the beach and um uh, that was me you know so i didn't really look at anything else i watched it and i had friends that did it this busby family that i talked about before too they're all car racers and drag racing um sprint cars that would have been something i would have liked to have done but that's basically speedway on four wheels you know for me and I yeah. we did a lot of we went to a lot of sprint car events here at Ascot Park uh, my dad used to take us there on on Thursday nights and Saturday nights when there were sprint cars uh Speedway was was Thursdays and the sprint cars were on Saturday nights so we did a lot of that too it was a blast you know um it, it's just uh anything you can do to um uh, get sideways for me was what it was all about so that's probably been my my main thing it's pretty much been like for everything that I've seen of yours. That's like your motto. Hey, just be sideways. Get sideways. Yeah. Yeah. It's um, you know, you go away at the end of the speedway season. I I put the motorcycles away, and um, we've usually done all the testing we wanted to do right at the end of the year, so I was still fresh and everything felt good. I didn't want to do yep. testing in the beginning of the year because you're rusty and you haven't found your feet and you're, you need to get into what start riding what you finished on. So, you know, it, you know, it was good then, but, uh, I would put the bikes away and for, for, you know, a good six to eight weeks at least and didn't touch them. I, I needed to get away. Although in the back of your mind, it's always turning. The wheel never stops turning. And, um, mm-hmm the first time I go ride the bikes again after, you know, six weeks or a month or, I mean, or two months or whatever, I get out on the track and you always went around slow. You know, I would do two kind of two laps kind of slow and just kind of drift a little bit to let the, make sure I didn't forget how to do it. Get <laughs> <laughs> it. But, uh, yep. then I would go a little bit faster. And then by the third lap or fourth lap, I was throwing the thing in there and backing it in. And, uh, I was like, this is what life's all about. Hey, that's that must be a uh, that must be one of the coolest feelings. What do, what does it feel like? Yeah. Uh, you know, I, to put that into words, getting sideways. I mean, it's. Uh, I always tell my thing is just to say, you know, get on your your bicycle and lay out some sand on the beach. You know, or lay out some sand on the concrete and just pedal as fast as you can and get going as quick as you can. And just lean it over with your foot forward and your weight forward and let the back end come out. You know, I like, there's just something about that. Whoa, it just, it's the quick whip of trying to control it. And then you add a motorcycle to that equation and and you're doing like, you know, 75, 80 miles an hour down the straightaway. 
and lean the thing over and it breaks into a drift and then you just you let it rip you know and you there's just nothing better than that that initial reaction of going in and the bike going sideways and throwing you into the slide and then you're standing up on it and you're controlling it with the throttle it's really easy once you get into the drift and once you get it to that point but getting it there is the hardest part because you got to trust yourself the faster you go the easier it is how how did your time with pro drive come come about the it was 2000 uh, get the year exactly 2006 or 2008 maybe it was 2008 um, there was there was a guy there that worked at ProDrive at the time. He was a, a former car nut himself. His name was Lars Sexton. Uh, he was working for ProDrive, and I was racing for Oxford. Uh, I remember they contacted Lars had gotten in contact with me at one point when I was racing at Oxford in those early years, and, um, and mentioned that they were interested in doing something. I didn't really know him at that time. I was doing it it didn't work out but then a year or two later a year later maybe I went to ride for Reading in the UK and mm-hmm. I was at one of the early races in the year and this guy was going calling my name from the from the side of the grandstands and and uh, or the grass field he's like great come here so I walked over and it was Lars and we started to have a chat and um he was uh, he's a really ambitious inspiring guy who's did a, spent a lot of time I think he raced go-karts and stuff but like jensen button grew up with all these guys at that time and uh you know like anything in car racing you know don't matter how good you are if you haven't got the backing and whatever he was one of those guys extremely talented as i understand it his dad put every last penny he could afford to into the kid and um you know they they didn't get the ride and uh but he stayed involved in the industry never bitter he was like yeah just you know this it is what it is you know and uh he ended up in the car industry and was working at pro drive um as a machinist i i believe was his uh was his job there and he was always into the speedway big fan of it and he said hey good i i i like your style like what you're doing and i would like to see what we can do to help you with your bikes and your chassis and there was a lot of talk about tony rickardson at that stage because tony was riding with frames built by penske and they were very interested to hear they they had some knowledge about this and they were kind of curious if they could get involved they would love to be a part of something too and help somebody and they said you know you're the kind of guy we like and uh, how can we help you out so it it escalated quickly from from that first conversation with Lars at Oxford and the pits there to getting a bike together uh with D- Darren Bucock was maybe you remember Darren I don't know if that name rings a bell for you um Darren was uh his dad Nigel Bucock was a, a successful speeder rider Eric Bucock his uncle too um and Darren was a rider who I was buddies with from a very young age because he was traveling back and forth between England and Australia during those years um and he and I and uh a buddy Louis Carr and and uh, my mechanic at the time in the UK we went to pro drive we were invited there we took a bike and we basically unloaded the thing. I remember when we unloaded it in the parking lot, it was uh, everybody stopped what they were doing. And these are all car dudes, but they were every single one of them was a motorcycle guy working in a car facility, wow. you know. And we wheeled the bike out, and they they all came to gather around and check it out and just trying to figure out how the thing worked. And um, uh, the guy who was the, the main uh, engineer, designer behind it um, that was friends with Lars... And a huge Speedway fan was a guy named Mick Metcalf. And um, 
together between Mick and Lars, they started this process. We we got the bike in there. They they put it up in the machine, started taking notes and making measurements. And um, there's a lot of people that worked there that were involved with this project um, uh, that became really really fun. But we 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 slowly tried to rebuild the speedway bike and change the the chassis completely, frame, forks, rear sections. And um, uh, at one point, it got the bike was uh, not unrideable, but it was it was working so good that it was working too good um, that you couldn't actually get you couldn't get the traction you were looking for because it was too positive. Everything was it was okay if you had a lot of dirt on the track, but uh, it's mm. pretty interesting that how simple a speedway bike is, how cheaply made they are, and they work perfectly the way they are. So uh, just got to that point where they started asking me questions about me and my riding, what I was looking for, what I was trying to correct. And um, from that point, we, we got into a conversation of trying to adjust the chassis to my, my riding style and, and some bad habits that I had that even stemmed back to the U.S. Uh, learned tracks and some of the mistakes I was making felt that I was trying to correct, I, you know, I talked about my seat positions and my foot peg positions and raising and lowering engines and trying to accomplish something to stop myself from, from riding the bike the, the way I was doing it. And I said, I, I just can't get to this point. I, my bikes are good, but I, I just can't get the traction where I need it and I overturn it. And uh, then they went to work and we spent quite some years uh, testing, and I think I uh, know the, the the frame combination that I have now is about the sixth generation of designs that they were working on, um, and that became the best one so far. And uh, you know, the first time they pulled something out was the end of 2010. That uh, that I was uh, I had already you know done so much testing, and and we made things that were <laughs> made it really difficult to ride. I crashed a lot because the, the frame was flexing too much. And then, you know, you have problems with the chain snapping and, and crashing in GP races in Gothenburg. I think I, I destroyed three or four bikes in the process, but um, what doesn't kill you only makes you stronger. Right. So yeah. by the end of 2010, they built me a, a chassis combination that I, I rode the first time in a practice and I, I came in and told my mechanics, I, I can win the world championship on this. And they just looked at me like, oh, okay. You know, and I was like, no, I'm serious. I, I can win the world championship on this. This thing is insane. It's unreal. And then I was world champion the following year. What a feeling after three to four years of development and, you know, re reworking the wheel, so to speak, to, to get to that point, eh? Yeah, you can't you can't reinvent it, but you can rework it, as you said, you know. And um, we we tried to reinvent it in the beginning. It had to had to to where we, uh, you know, it's obviously that 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 was a major contribution. And then putting, uh, you know, we had all the ingredients. We had good engines. We had good mechanics. We had everything. And I I think the rider was was okay. But at that point, they made the somebody really special you know and i found that i was able to start making changes to my starting technique again and moving myself on the bike a little bit differently than i had done previously and just always trying to be a little bit better you know and you know i was getting older too so i realized that you can't just win by turning the throttle wide open you have to be smarter and 
and a little more calculated and have equipment that works really good for you. So that's where I put my efforts. Do, do you feel that there was a time where you found that there was like your your peak? It mightn't have been like riding, uh, riding peak, but there was like peak of knowledge. Uh, you knew your position. You knew how to start. Just there was like a peak peak performance. Do you feel there was a certain time that you felt that was the time? Was it say 2011, that, that title year? Was there any particular time? 2011 went really good, but probably I think 2014, I really started to figure it out because I started to mix with other guys too and work with a fabrication company here uh, in California, mm. uh, Coast Fabrication, who actually was doing business with ProDrive at that time too, uh, manufacturing uh, parts and and, um, and hardware for, for the race team, for their rally team and what have you. So together, these guys, suddenly I met this guy here in California who's a guy named Jeff Haywood, car racer, champion, IndyCar, everything. And he was, that dude is a wealth of knowledge too. So meeting him and then finding out that he was doing business with them, it was kind of like a really small network of people super far away from each other. But uh, we started working together, all of us. And Jeff did a whole nother by racing where we sent away from the chassis just a little bit and put more focus in in other areas with exhausts and carburation and air filters and and uh, wheel combinations and he was like the king of you know he was a sprint car racer so he was like rather than working with four wheels we were just working with two we had no suspension so we were what can we do how do we get traction to the ground when we can't adjust you know we can't adjust any of this kind of stuff and making power that was usable power, not just raw power. We had to find a way to make it usable. And that's where I think some of the things that we did in 2014, um, I suddenly just went like, oh my gosh, I didn't know a damn thing about Speedway uh, until now. And I had already won two world championships and I was still figuring it out. And all of a sudden it was becoming more and more clear that it really depends on the kind of people you're you're working with, you know. I couldn't do everything on my own. My mechanics were doing everything that, you know, they we were all getting complacent at one point, um, and we were making progress, but uh, very slowly. And suddenly, it was like they opened a whole new door, and and uh, I was crazy. I was testing all the time, all the time, and um, you know, as Jeff always said, we would make he would make something new, or we would test something new, and if it didn't work. We put it in the pile with all the wind chimes. <laughs> so uh, we <laughs> referred right. to that. Well, this one might be with the wind chimes, or uh, or watch us go, man. So he um, wow. yeah, he stayed with me right up through the end of my career there, and um, uh, ended up he sold his business and moved to Idaho and built a really bitchin' new workshop up there now too. So we have just started uh, talking about um, picking up the pace again and developing for for magic and loop wow tell me this with the um the australian round it might have been the year that you they won the title here in 16 ty they ty was testing the the next year's bikes i remember this was being like the rumor as such i never quite understood what that really meant what sort of things would people test like would it be like you said foot peg positions and things like that is that some of the changes that would people look at uh, yeah, for sure. I mean, Ty's team seems like he's, you know, he's always 
trying to do new things and um uh, and that's part of it you know he knows that he's you know you've you've got to be you've got to be a step ahead somehow and he's trying to be you know change the you know whether moving weight content on the bike or or moving footrest positions seat positions handlebars changing your he's made a lot of changes to his chassis as well using different materials i think and and different frame designs um so you know something that works just for him and obviously it's working for him so at that point i don't know exactly what he would have been doing but more than likely he was starting to play with a little bit with different materials he was playing with with uh, positioning maybe they had had new chassis at that point i didn't really pay attention to people's what they were doing like that i never really studied other guys i just thought if they're doing well and i could see where they were doing well then i would look for something that they might be doing and think, oh, okay, they're, that's what they're doing. And then you understood if you've already tried it or if oh, maybe they got a point there and I wonder how I could marry that into my program a little bit and make it work for me. But, um, you know, it's, uh, uh, it's a never ending game, you know? Yeah. And I guess it comes back to just, uh, worrying about what's in your own backyard, you know, doesn't it? Pretty much. And, uh, you know, if you're constantly worried about what the next guy's doing, then, um, you know, you're not thinking about what you're doing yourself and then you're then you're in trouble. But yep. the speeder yep. bike is very, very simple machinery. It's it's an over 500 cc motor in it. No brakes, no suspension, except for a couple of inches in the front. Um, we have no traction control. We have no fuel injection. So everything is still operated right here and, and right here and, and the seat of your pants. So that's what I mean. It's not all about having the right frame and the right motor. If you can't ride it, then, um, you know, you're going to have a tough career. Out of the, we won't even just say titles, but what are some of the special memories? Like, obviously, 97, 11, 14, 16 are title years. You must, there's so many other things wrapped up in it. I, I'd hate to try and get you to break it all down, but what's something that's really special to you? Um, you know, there, I, I think just there's such a combination of things for me. I, I mean, I, I, I met my wife, um, you know, in between my first two world championships and that was a, a big turning point in my life, uh, for lots of reasons. And I worked at the same place to Sweden meeting uh, a group of, uh, a Swedish guys from the motocross industry, Jeff Nilsson and his father, Bill Nilsson, who are, both world champions from uh, either motocross world champions or enduro world champions and uh, learning a whole nother technique and, and they changed my thought process on racing completely. So I, I think at that point, I really, I, I'm only, the only thing I regret is I didn't win a world championship with those guys because we should have. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time winning in 2011, you know, one or two years after they had finished working with me, um, it was all part of the process, you know, and uh, one of the guys had told me that, you know, you don't become a champion overnight. It can take a year, two years, three years, five years for some guys to get the experience and the knowledge and how it works. And little did I know they were exactly right because suddenly things clicked. You know, I would have anticipated, but um, for me, those are the highlights because of the people I worked with that shaped me into becoming who I am today um whether it was um the husband and the father with my wife she's been my greatest inspiration and my therapist and you know the one who talked me out of of uh, not stop racing you know one or two times 
And I thought I've reached my peak. I'm not going to be any better. You know, and you start to question yourself because you're just, it's not going the way you want it to go. So it's all smiles like this. But when I turn, when I, when I turn the screen off, you, know, you don't get to see what the other side of Greg Hancock. <laughs> well, that's the thing. Everyone's got it. Haven't they? There's uh the, we see the smiling, we see the grin, but there's got to be a competitor there that, that is constant as well. It doesn't stop. It never stops, you know, and um, uh, it's still right now. It doesn't stop, you know. I'm still watching everything, and I pay attention, and I think oh, that guy's—he's making a mistake there. This isn't not going to work. And sometimes you're proven wrong too, and you're thinking, "Oh, okay. Well, that guy must be special. It can't just be the equipment. That guy knows how to use the equipment." And um, but you know, as a person and mentally, and making good choices and remembering what's going on around you, I put that down to my wife. Um, she wow. has really opened my eyes to communication and understanding and also the respect of, you know, it's very easy to forget about your family and your friends and certain people when you're so hardcore into your racing because it is all about you, right? But um, she taught me how to balance that out and, and remember that your kids are still here waiting for you with a big smile and, uh, you know, don't forget that either. And your wife is too. <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> it's one of those things that you hear. Um you know, a lot of athletes, motorsports are selfish pursuit. And in some ways, I guess, I guess it must be, hey, as well, you know. Without a doubt, there's a balance for everybody. And I think you, you probably will hear that. I mean, you know, I've got a lot of heroes out there and I listen to a lot of podcasts these days and, and, and most of them are with my heroes, the guys that have retired and some of the youngsters coming up because you want to hear where they are in their, you know, their mental state. And you know where you were and you see the youngsters in Speedway and you want to hear how similar it is and where they are in their maturity. And some are amazing, right, at a very young age. And some you can hear are like, he's not there yet, you know, and and uh, the aggression and the, the the youth and the testosterone is just like, ah, you know, and at some point they find a way to, to manage all that and balance it out and then success starts to come. For sure. How did it change having kids and being on tour? Massive, massive. That mm. was... Uh, you change heavily as a person. You're never ready for kids. You know, I was never ready for kids, never ready. And then, you know, meeting my wife and getting married, I was like, I can probably do this, but a little bit scared, a little bit nervous. What's everybody going to think if, if I struggle? It's going to be because of me having kids or being a dad and blah, blah, blah. But suddenly when, when Wilbur was born, it was like, I got all the time in the world and nothing else matters right now, you know? And you were yeah. like, then it... 100% changes your mentality, your focus, your your life perspective. And uh, I definitely took a dip in my racing for a period there and tried to figure it out. But in the end, it was probably the best thing that ever happened because you realized um, how to prioritize and how to share the love uh in more than just your your racing world you know i had my wife who i loved dearly and and gave her as much time as i could but having the kids now too and the dog and and then have come home from the races i i tried really hard uh, it probably never happened but i tried to shut that door leave the racing out here and have my home life here um and uh you know but the good thing is if i was struggling there or uh, maybe having difficult times uh, mentally or just my wife could feel that right and she would she knew it was time to talk and she'd so what's up and nothing 
yeah right so what's up you know and then the conversation starts and suddenly you get it off your chest and you start to talk about it and you see clarity and uh she was a good one for sometimes she you know when you're around racing people and fans and stuff everybody wants the best for you so they tell you everything you like to hear and my wife was the yeah. one who would always tell me the stuff that was probably what i didn't want to hear but i needed to hear and um that's what puts your feet back on the ground Definitely, and there's there's really only a couple of people that truly understand you as a person. You said it. Yeah. You said it. And uh, and you have to be open, right, to to accept that criticism. <laughs> Otherwise, <laughs> it could be trouble. <laughs> it can be tough. I got a couple couple of little things. How 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 does Speedway in America grow? What's the what's the what's the succession path? Obviously, you're helping out a few riders there, and you've your um, well-established name and that out what what's the other methods to to make it a you know a larger sport in that in that country that's that's the million dollar question right there you know um uh, it, it's not easy you know this the world of speedway here in the u.s these days is um has taken a massive hit and difficult uh, you know and obviously covid has has really destroyed everything too and and made it really tough. But there's been one or two promoter here who's managed to keep Speedway alive at a reasonable level, you know, that's kind of off the charts a little bit, but it's working. Um, you know, promotion, the promoters in Speedway here today are are different than they were in the 80s, and, and it is. Life is different than it was in the 80s. Um, and it's a lot of competition. There's a lot of things that kids can do, you know, and um, a lot of sports and then you have uh you have this <laughs> so it's uh it's really tough to beat with social media with telephones with uh life on the internet and what's going on it's you, you know people don't um they don't always look for something new speedway is really interesting and really fun but it's not a it's not a motorcycle you can buy anywhere it's a lot of work to put one together it's still a relatively cheap uh, motorcycle sport or motorsport compared to most. However, you know, to buy a speeder bike, where do you go, right? There's only two places really here in the U.S., in California, I should say, where you can buy a motorcycle. And uh, really, there's not, unless it's a used bike, you have to build it yourself or have them build it for you. So it's not like you just go down to your motorcycle dealer and buy a, a new Honda or Yamaha or something. You actually got to pick the chassis that you want, build the frame, pick the wheels that you want, build, put the wheels on, decide what engine you're going to use, get the engine, the carburetor, you know, um, it, they're, they're a little bit specific like that. Um, Jawa used to make race ready bikes you could buy and they still do, but they're just, you have to make so many changes to them to make them competitive. Uh, although you can still buy one and race it around here. Um, it's, it's missing that. And, uh, you know, even in my years of distribution in Sweden too, we tried to build, uh, working with motorcycle dealers with Troy Lee at that time, we were building speedway bikes uh, with all the and, and with uh, bought some engines from a, an engine tuner in Germany from Tornado Cams and built race ready motors that were uh, I could win races on them for sure, even at the hot the top level and put the right carburetors, the right clutches. I built a kind of tried to build like a, a motocross version speedway bike 
that you could buy and go race it on a on a you know a weekend a weekend level and be competitive in in many different age classes kind of a deal. It it was going to be it's going to work. It wasn't going to break. And we we built four bikes and we placed them in in four different dealers around Sweden. And Speedway's big in Sweden too. So if you walk into a motorcycle dealer and you see a, a street bike, you see a trials bike, you see a motocross bike, you see um, maybe a mini bike of some kind or whatever, and then you can see a speeder bike um, as you walk through there mm. and put a price tag on it, put all the information there about the bike, gave them the opportunity to uh, a parts list for, for spare parts and where to get them and how to do it, and not one bike sold, not one serious inquiry. People walked in, looked at it, sat on it, never asked anything more, and... Um, Really? I sat there for a year, almost a year and a half. No interest whatsoever. Yeah, just such a huge, you know, you you go and put in a, a distribution type service like that and have one person come and look at it and that's it. That's a, it's crazy. Yeah, hardly, hardly at all. So, I mean, you can sell it. We can sell the bikes afterwards and get our money back. Yeah. But, um, you know, on the Speedway market, but to put them in the dealers to try to create a something new and part probably perseverance and doing some much more uh, you know activation and promote we probably could have bettered that at the same time when you got zero interest it's really hard to get interested to to put more into it too <laughs> it's a two-way street with the with the uh, calendar for for this year how do you think uh, would would you have enjoyed that? I would enjoy it for sure. I think that mm. what they're doing now, I like I like this two day system because it's uh, obviously you you're there. You can plant yourself there for a weekend, right? You can be there Friday, Saturday, Sunday, um, yep. or Friday, Saturday because they still do polling on some Sundays too, which makes it that makes it hard. But having a two day format, I think is is awesome and reducing mm. the number of practices. So you get one practice and then race race. Uh, I really like that. Or practice in the morning of both events would be awesome, and then race in the evening, I think would be phenomenal. Um, but I, I really I liked it last year when they did it, and I think having it the way they're doing it again this year, they they've got to do it to comply with COVID regulations, you know, because things are still not 100% back to normal yep. yet. So uh, I, I like it. I think it's going to pay off. It's a uh, probably a money saving or a more economical way to do it for, for riders, for the fans, for the promoters. It's probably what the sport has needed and gives people the chance to go take a vacation in Poland for or Czech Republic or, or wherever they're going to do the rest of them for sure because nothing is really concrete yet. But that uh, you can go to the GP, you go to Poland for the weekend, and you can see two events. Um, instead of planning, you're only going to see one event in Poland this year because you can't afford to go twice. I, I like it, and you touched on your you enjoy the Supercross and the Motocross. They'd sort of done that with their structure for Supercross this year, and it was awesome. I actually quite like the way it's done, and it's sort of the same idea, different different uh, obviously countries and such, but same sort of concept, double headers and that. It, it works really well as a fan. I, I would think that the writers, I mean, I haven't, I haven't listened to anybody uh, in a podcast or anything yet talk about this yet, but I, I would imagine the writers would – would like that too because it, it changes their training techniques too and uh, gives them a little bit more time 
uh, after an event, you know, as mm-hmm. long as they don't have to be at, you know, and one of my buddies is uh, here locally. He's in the uh, works with KYB in the suspension slide. So him being away from home for two to four, five weeks, sometimes staying in the mm-hmm. same hotel in one place, he's like, you know, after a while, you're like, you got to get out of there. You know, it's it's the it wears you down because you're you're living in a in a hotel room and um, you know, you're eating out all the time. Now, that makes sense. Well, mate, I'm gonna leave it. I'm gonna leave it there. We've uh, we've banged on enough uh, for the last last few hours. It's three a.m. on Thursday morning here, and it's probably about ten there. So, genuinely um, appreciate everything so much from from what you've uh, said and everything, Greg. And when when I reached out to you, like this is uh, show forty five of of Talk and Chatter. Um, when you wrote back to say you'd be honoured to be on there, mate, you made my um made my day and talking to you for these few hours I really genuinely appreciate it so thanks heaps mate it's a pleasure man and again i really appreciate the fact that you you brought it into show number 45 and that's just that's uh that's awesome so uh thanks for the offer i wish you all the luck with this and uh know that i'm always here if you need to talk some more chatter i'm, I'm pretty good at just talking awesome mate no worries well we'll leave it there and uh thanks to everyone for listening and uh we'll catch you around take care guys